This is Talking Beats. I'm Daniel Lelchuk, and I welcome you. Go ahead and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join us at Talking Beats Podcast on social media to keep the conversation going. On today's program, political commentator Charlie Sykes. He's been chronicling conservative politics and national trends for decades on the radio as one of the most influential right-wing hosts in the Midwest, television, where he makes many appearances, and books, which include A Nation of Victims, The End of Privacy, and most recently, How the Right Lost Its Mind. I began by asking him if there's room for anyone at the center of American politics, if that word is even relevant anymore. Here's what he said. Well, I hope so. I mean, that's, that's all I can say right now. I mean, I do think that there's a vital, vital center in American politics uh, uh, between the center right and the center left. And I think a lot of us have much more in common than we have uh, in, in opposition to one another. But there's no question about it right now in American politics. It is the uh, the loudest voices in the room and at the extremes that are driving the agenda. So uh, you were asking a great question because right now it feels kind of lonely to be a centrist. But I do think that there's there's always going to be a future uh, after the fever breaks. You know, I, I wonder because I hear this a lot. And as a, as a casual observer, I'm not a professional politician. I'm not a pundit, but I talk to people and I read and listen. I hear that the, the popular refrain where the left is moving farther left and the right is moving farther right. Is it as simple as that? No, I don't think it is. I think, um, especially with the right, and again, I'm, I'm speaking as, as someone who's been a longtime conservative, what strikes me is the right isn't moving more right wing. It's becoming more disconnected from reality. It is becoming more tribal. It has become, uh, once again, just a series of irritable gestures rather than coherent ideas. So in terms of what's happening right now, it seems like the right has become more invested in just triggering liberals, doing whatever Donald Trump uh, is, is saying at the moment. So in terms of actual policy decisions, are they becoming more fiscally conservative? Are they becoming more conservative constitutionally? I'm not seeing that. Uh, so uh, in terms of the left, I mean, you know, clearly progressives have a certain amount of energy behind them. But if this was the party of AOC, then Joe Biden would not be the nominee of the Democratic Party. So at least for the moment, the Democratic Party is having a a centrist moment. And I, I think that uh, if Joe Biden were to lose this year, I think the party probably would lurch pretty hard left because that would be seen as discrediting centrist politics. But we'll have to see. Well, it seems like a hard sell. I mean, what you're saying makes sense, but it seems that it's going to be a hard sell to convince lots of people, millions of people that that they really are voting only for Joe Biden and, and not for AOC. Do you, isn't that a tough sell somehow? Well, I, I think that this is what the Republicans want to do. They, they want to make uh, Joe Biden into, you know, Karl Marx Jr. They want to uh, convince Americans that the Joe Biden, uh, Grandpa Joe, is a stalking horse for a radical Marxist takeover of the country, that he really represents a party that hates America, hates capitalism, hates God, all of those things. And I think that's going to be a somewhat hard sell because Joe Biden is Joe Biden, right? I mean, all he needs to do is sort of stand up there on the stage and smile and 
kind of shrug his shoulders and say, well, there you go again, because that's not who I am. Um, I'm not Bernie Sanders. I'm not AOC. I'm not Che Guevara. And there's, there's a, there's, there's a problem that I think that, that Trump folks are having in deciding, do they want to portray Joe Biden as sleepy Joe, senile Joe, or Joe as the man who will tear down America as you know it? They kind of have to choose. You know, e- either Joe Biden is, you know, sleepy, uh, you know, and senile, or he, he poses a real existential threat to American democracy, and I think they 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 do they do have to come down on one side or the other at some point. Okay, you brought up two things that I want to touch on, but first, let me ask you: a lot of people in the last election said they voted for Trump because they hated Hillary so much. A popular refrain: "I couldn't stand Hillary, and I felt forced to vote for Trump." Now, something that I hear a lot is, "Well, those people will." vote Democratic now, because Biden isn't Hillary, because he doesn't have the baggage, the scandals, the, well, I guess he, he <laughs> certain ones, but, but you know, the magnitude of, and the, the evil with which she was portrayed. Is that a fair assumption to make, though, that these people will, will come running back just because Biden is not Hillary? It, it's a dangerous assumption because, of course, uh, Donald Trump and the Republicans have a billion dollars to spend to demonize uh, Joe Biden. I mean, they could, they will try to define him. They will try to uh, make uh, uh, you know score political points on about his scandals about Ukraine, et, et, et cetera. Uh, there are a couple of problems for the Republicans, though. Number one. They're running out of time. I mean, every single day that passes is a day that they're not going to be getting back. Normally. In a political, a well-run political campaign, the Republicans would have defined Joe Biden, smeared Joe Biden by now. They would not have let him get out of the summer months with, without uh, having, you know, had an avalanche of, uh, of negative ads. But I think one of the biggest differences between Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton uh, that, that I think a lot of Democrats did not appreciate four years ago is that Hillary Clinton was not just disliked. She had been disliked for more than two decades. She had been marinating in Republican conservative hatred for a very, very long time. So it didn't take much to uh, identify her in that particular way. And I, and I don't think that uh, Democrats fully understood the, the, the depth and the breadth of the dislike of Hillary Clinton. That doesn't exist with Joe Biden. Joe Biden's been around for a very long time. I think people know him. I think people are kind of comfortable with him. So, yes, they will spend a billion dollars trying to demonize him. And, yes, his uh, his disapproval rates will go up between now and the election. But I don't think you can turn Joe Biden into Hillary Clinton. What did you think of Hillary? What did you think of her chances? What did you think of when, when it came down to it, when you saw it was going to be Trump versus Hillary? Obviously, Trump wasn't someone who who you were extremely keen on, but I'm imagining that, that you weren't looking, you know, to, to have a political love affair with Hillary Clinton either. No, I mean, understand that I was never Trump from the moment he came down that golden escalator. Um, but I'll be really honest with you, I never thought he'd be elected president. I did not think that he would beat Hillary Clinton. I, I do remember saying that the, uh, you know, perhaps the, the, the only, the only politician more unpopular than, than Trump was, was Hillary. But I never imagined that he would be elected president. So I want to just keep that in mind. I also, you know, obviously was, didn't vote. I didn't vote for Hillary. I voted for a third party candidate. 
in part because I didn't think that the election was really in question. So it was a free vote for me. And I don't think that people feel that way. I think that there's a different dynamic. I think that voters are going to be far less likely to be complacent. I think they're less likely to feel that they are willing to uh, lose their vote. I think that the polls that show a lack of enthusiasm for Joe Biden are misleading because I, I think what's driving a lot of voters is not whether or not they're for Joe Biden. It's how intensely they want to get rid of Donald Trump. And I think that that's going to be one of the, the driving forces behind uh, this election. What do you think is happening in Wisconsin? Obviously, it's a it's an interesting state. Can can you analyze where things are now, sort of mid mid late summer in in Wisconsin, a state that that Hillary never set foot in, and I because of the virus, I'm assuming Biden won't be going there either. But what what do you hear around you? I see the same polls that everybody else sees, and uh, I, I would I would uh, caution people against uh, forgetting how close uh, Wisconsin is. That we, we we tend to be on a razor's edge, and I think that's going to be the case again. The big questions here in Wisconsin will be: What is the level of intensity of the Democratic turnout in Milwaukee? Voters did not turn out in big numbers for Hillary Clinton. I think she lost forty thousand votes. In Milwaukee County, those would be voters who came out and voted for Barack Obama but did not come out for her. Will that happen again? My gut sense is that uh, the Democrats are going to have a, a very, very big turnout. Then the second question becomes uh, what happens in the suburbs? We have the so-called wow counties, Waukesha, Ozaki, and Washington counties, which are very heavily Republican and which have really been the beating heart of the Republican Party in Wisconsin. But Trump underperformed in 2016. And I'm getting the sense that he's having the same erosion among suburban voters here that we're seeing elsewhere. That's a big problem for him. And then we get the rest of the state, the rural, overwhelmingly white, rural, blue-collar uh, agricultural areas of the state where Trump has done very well. Can he add to his margin? Is he going to be picking up other votes? Are there hidden Trump voters? I don't know the answer to that. I'm very skeptical of it because the numbers aren't there. So in Wisconsin, it often comes down to this, uh, you know, the, the, the extent of the Democratic turnout in, in Madison, Dane County, and in Milwaukee County, and whether or not uh, Trump will be able to hold the Republican base in the suburbs. So uh, I think that right now the polls suggesting that he's behind by six to eight points are probably right. Charlie Sykes, I want to go to an article I read recently on the bulwark. But, but first, before we get to that, you know, I, I hear you on TV as a commentator occasionally, and and they always introduce you as the founder, editor-at-large of The Bulwark, but no one ever says what it is. What is The Bulwark? Well, it's an interesting question because it's become something different than what we expected. I mean, um, <laughs> you go, no, really, um, it's, it's really an extraordinary experience because it, you go back to the end of uh, 2018, and uh, the Weekly Standard um, was abruptly shut down by its owners, I think, for not being sufficiently Trumpy. And a number of us were scrambling, like, what do we do? What do we do with the with the Weekly Standard? And Bill Crystal, Senator Longwell, and I decided what we're going to do is we will turn this website that was an aggregator known as The Bulwark, we'll turn it into sort of a temporary home for some of the staff of the Weekly Standard, see if we can keep it going. And we had no idea how long it would last, whether it would last for three months, six months, whatever, and whether or not 
you know, there would be a renewed weekly standard that would rise out of the ashes. So um, we started that and we published our first, we went live on January 7th. So I want you to think about this. The weekly standard was officially shut down on December 14th, December 14th. We were up and running by January 7th with pretty much the full online digital staff of the weekly standard and staff in, in, in intact. And I think that was the key. It, it has become much bigger than we'd ever expected, more successful, which I'm, I'm very grateful for. I think there was an appetite for center-right commentary that was, um, to say that we were anti-Trump, I don't think is going too far, that was not buying Trump. What had been happening in the conservative media is that one after another, uh, conservative outlets had decided they were going to become either pro-Trump or anti-anti-Trump, you know, one after another. So our voice appeared at a distinctive moment to say, no, we're still here. We're not buying it. We're not getting on board, and we're going to run lively, controversial, no-holds-barred commentary about uh, the, this clown car uh, presidency we're living through. Uh, and there's also a, a few words on the website. I, I'm sort of fascinated by the website. There's a lot of articles, but there's also a, a little more sort of about. And a about section is kind of rare for a news organization. And it, it also is quite apparent that, that you don't want to be put into into a left category either. Is it a, what is it a free speech category? What What is it? I think it's more of a free thinking category is that we want to be able to say what we're actually thinking. And this period has been kind of liberating for some of us. I mean, there was a time when it was kind of a, you know, lockstep politics where if if you didn't have all of these positions, you were a rhino. What we've experienced is, you know, we're we're free now. Uh, we are non-tribal. We are going to go where, you know, where the commentary takes us. So we've assembled a group of writers and some of the writers are, you know, are quite progressive um and our door is open to them as well so we span a spectrum there's not a party line on ideology i think we're united by our horror and distaste for what's been happening in the white house but beyond that i think there's a range of opinions that you'll see reflected uh, both on the on the on the website in the newsletters in our and in our podcasts how much editorial control do you seek to exert? It sounds like not much at all. Well, I, I don't. I mean, I'm editor-at-large sitting here in, in Wisconsin, but I think that you can see pretty clearly the range that we, we allow. It's, it's uh, you know, you know, one of the, I don't want to diss anybody in, in particular, but there are in a lot of conservative publications, and this has been heartbreaking for me, this real desire to, you know, censor, not desire, this practice and pattern of, of of censoring commentary that might be too hostile to the administration and that there are, there are these donors um, or financiers who are looking over the shoulder of the folks saying, no, you don't really want to do that. I mean, there's a reason why so many prominent conservatives have moved and left the publications they've been with for decades. It's because of this pressure. We don't have that. We, we kind of are the, the island of misfit toys. We're the free territory where you can come. If you want to express this opinion, go right at it. Okay, I like that the island of misfit toys. We're gonna, uh, maybe that could be the uh, masthead in the future for the bulwark. <laughs> That's the way I feel about it. So, <laughs> Okay, so Charlie Sykes, speaking of the bulwark, I was reading uh, an article on the bulwark. Part of the headline read, quote, if fusionist conservatism is an ashes then it's time to build something new. And that 
sort of struck me because there's now people on the right talking about, quote, burning it down. And there's people on the left, quote, talking about burning it down. And they're talking about burning down two very different things. But it's striking to hear both sides of politics with loud voices saying, burn it down. What is going on? That's a great question. I think it's it's because we live in such disorienting times and all the old dogmas, all the old verities have been broken. The whole you know, Reagan uh, consensus on, on, on the right was shattered by the rise of, of, of Trump. I think that uh, folks on, on the left are also impatient for, for change. But that just means that we're in a period of great intellectual turmoil. And I think in a lot of ways that's kind of exciting. I mean, you can, you can sort of see, you know, people's eyes getting a little bit wider and thinking, so I can think this. Well, maybe let's think about this very other, this, this other idea. Now, I wrote a piece called Burn It Down, which was specifically targeted to this November's election, by which I meant what's left of the elected Republican Party. Can you get rid of Trumpism? And still support the Trump boot bootlickers and basically decided with the exception of, say, a Mitt Romney, for example, kind of I'm done with elected Republicans that that none of them deserve election. There's a larger question, though, is like what's left of conservatism? Is there any coherent idea? Obviously, conservatism is no longer about fiscal conservatism or constitutional conservatism, right? It's not about free trade. It's not about American exceptionalism. So I think the piece that you mentioned is basically saying, you know, what if the entire conservative movement that existed after World War II and built by William F. Buckley Jr., what if that's all been destroyed already? Maybe we ought to start building something that would look more like classical liberalism. And this goes back to your first question. Is there a form of sort of classical, inclusive, liberal, small L liberalism that would find common ground between center left and center right? If we sort of jettison a lot of the ideological baggage that we've been fighting over for the last 20 years. And I don't know the answer to that. I found that particular article to be very interesting. And as I said, we're in this period of thinking, rethinking, going, what do we really believe? What is important? What was what was just contingent? What were what were postures we took because it was convenient versus what are the core values that are most important? And, and along these lines, I think one of the things where I am at right now, I mean, I spent years working with think tanks and writing books about various public policy. But what I realized now, I think, at least for now, the moment, is that Politics is, is less about specific policies than it is about values. I'm looking at the election and thinking, what is the most important thing that I'm looking for in a president? And I'm looking for an empathetic, decent, honest human being. Now, I may disagree with that person six, seven, eight times out of ten on specific public policy. But if we share certain values, then we can do business. On the other hand... I may agree with certain conservative policies, public policies, certain pieces of legislation, but if it means sacrificing decency, honesty, and empathy, then I'm out. You mentioned a few times thought and intellectual freedom, and I'm extrapolating from that the idea of exploration in one's head, exploration with people who might not agree with you which seems like a, a ridiculous notion now, but you know, I, as a, as a sort of middle-aged millennial, think that I even experienced 
then <laughs> at, at some point. Uh, so it's not so long ago, but, but now it seems ridiculous. And hopefully it, it won't be that way for the rest of time. But I, I, you know, I, I think a lot about college campuses. You've written a lot about college campuses. I, I use this as an example, what I'm about to reference, and, and I wonder what your take is and if you can put it in a bigger illustrative context. And it's that there is a petition at Amherst College, like there is a, many colleges and universities, for various changes. And one of the changes that is being demanded is the change of name of the library, which is named after the New England poet Robert Frost, because he was allegedly <laughs> racist. And in a widely disseminated email, nothing private here, the, the, the president of Amherst College wrote, and I'm quoting, the faculty will re-examine the statement of academic and expressive freedom at its meetings in the fall 2020 semester. Can you contextualize this? It, it seems a little scary to hear that faculty will be re-examining statement of academic and expressive freedom. This ought to be the exact sweet spot of classical liberalism, center-right, center-left, to realize that uh, the at the heart of higher education has to be academic freedom, and academic freedom needs to push back against any of these attempts to uh, restrict freedom of thought. Now, I will tell you that I find the debates over naming to be, in general, tedious. I don't have a problem with removing the names of, you know, failed Confederate generals from U.S. Army forts. Um, I think that's ridiculous. I don't have any problem going through the process of doing that or changing the name of a school, say, from Robert E. Lee school to the John Lewis school. I have no problem with all of that. But it does seem as if there is this performative wokeness that feels the need to take these moral stands over things that don't really matter, that seem more concerned about enforcing a certain amount of conformity or demanding certain kinds of virtue signaling as opposed to really engaging in an idea. I mean, what is solved by changing the name of a school named after Robert Frost. I have no idea what Robert Frost's personal thoughts were. Uh, so, you know, these seem to me to be distractions of, uh, from people who are content to engage in frivolous fights as opposed to doing the hard business of solving real problems, which is part of the problem of, the, of our politics right now, that, you know, the, the tribalism doesn't see, particularly on the right, doesn't seem that terribly interested in accomplishing anything as long as you can sort of wave the bloody flag, you know, proclaim yourself a, a victim and dominate your opponent. That's unfortunately sufficient for too many folks. There are two scenarios that I want to ask you about, and, and I'm only going to put them in the framework of, of a landslide. So a landslide win for Biden does what to the, say, 35% of rabid Trump supporters? And a landslide win for Trump electorally d does what to however much of the country uh, uh, is against him? What, what happens? Well, at the risk of being completely wrong about this, I don't think there's going to be a Trump landslide. Uh, I think it's more likely that it's either going to be close or a Biden landslide. In, in the back of my mind, by the way, I'm, I'm actually thinking of, a, of an interview I did with the BBC right before the 2016 election, and I was talking about what happens to the Republican Party after the election and how we would rebuild. And the host of the show said, well, uh, Mr. Sykes, what happens if Mr. Trump wins? And you know what I remember? I was absolutely speechless. I hadn't thought about that. It seemed <laughs> completely. You no, know, it was so, it was so, 
you know, impossible to imagine that I honestly was startled by the question. I mean, I, I don't, I don't even remember what I said. So <laughs> I, I was thinking about that when I was answering this, this, this question. I think it's a little bit naive to think that even a landslide victory is going to end this, the national nightmare because uh, what will happen is that 35% uh, will you know, don the mantle of victimization. Look, Donald Trump will not ever acknowledge that he was beaten. He is building the case. Uh, he's building a grievance movement um, that will claim that he was betrayed or that it was cheated, he was cheated or that it was stolen. Only in the case of a landslide victory will that be implausible. But even if it's implausible, does not mean they will not try it. <laughs> so it will also mean one would hope is that the full-on repudiation of Trumpism will shock the Republican Party back to sanity. I'm skeptical about their ability to get back to sanity, but that's the only thing that will happen when Republicans begin to realize if we continue on this route, this is the road to oblivion. Now, it is the road to oblivion. This is my argument about Trumpism from just a Republican electoral point of view, that you cannot be a successful national party if you antagonize uh, young people, women, African Americans, um, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, you are going to be blown away by the demographic changes in this country. Will that be put on fast forward? I mean, they're going to be obliterated by 2040, no matter what, at this at this rate. But will it happen right now? So you would hope that a landslide victory would discredit Trumpism for a generation. Unfortunately, I think the dysfunction and the alternative reality world of the right is so ingrained um, that that's going to be difficult. But you know what? You do what you can, and then you, you know, one step at a time. I mean, my feeling right now, speaking to you in early August, is the house is on fire. We need to put the fire out now. We'll worry about the redecorating later. Charlie Sykes aren't there similarities in other countries, you know, that sort of mirror in a way. I mean, if you look at Hungary, Turkey, Poland, the Philippines, uh, Brazil, I mean, there, there's, there are waves all over the globe of of people who, who, if they lived in our country, in the United States, w- would support Trump, right? Yes. No, um, actually, I think about this a great deal. Um, because you're right, there there is this uh, this uprising of uh, populist authoritarianism around the con- around the world, and you see the vulnerability of liberal democracy in those countries that you mentioned, and you mentioned some of them that that actually have fans here in this country. But you, you watch the patterns in, in in Hungary and Poland and other places, and it is very reminiscent of what's happening here. And so the story we've been telling ourselves is that we are different. That it can't happen here because there's something distinctive about Americans that, well, yes, somebody like, uh, you know, Orban uh, can come to power and consolidate power and destroy democracy in a place like Hungary. But that doesn't mean it can happen here because our institutions are so robust and our, our public just would not put up with it. So I think that's the big question mark. Are we as distinctive as we thought? Are we as immune from history as we had imagined before now? So if there is a Trump re-election, and then you, you did ask me, you know, what if there's a Trump landslide? Then, quite frankly, guys like uh, somebody like me will have to sit back and reevaluate whether our understanding of American culture and our fellow Americans needs to be revised. And that may sound harsh, but 
It's it, you'd have to say, do we really understand who we are, and and are we who we've been telling ourselves we are? That's not such a nice note to end on. So I'm going to uh, take the liberty of of asking you something that you you're probably not used to being asked because on on this show I I, I always ask people about music. It's called Talking Beats, and everybody loves music in some form or another. What are you listening to? What what music do you like when you're having a drink and reading headlines and, and sort of fuming? Well, it depend it depends on my mood. If 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 it's really, really bad, I will listen to Enya. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I will. Um, w- when I when I'm writing, I usually have uh, Mozart on in the background, which works for me. But I will tell you, and this is completely random, and I hope people don't read too much into it. I love Russian music. I actually have my favorite playlist. I, w- I would say would characterize it as, as as Russian folk music, things like that. I, and I don't know why, and it has nothing to do with geopolitics in any way whatsoever. <laughs> now, or, but, are you but, a lover but, of, of, of Prokofiev or Tchaikovsky, or are you like a? a... I, I have always loved them, but I always, but I also love choral Russian music. I love listening to Midnight in Moscow. I like a lot of those things that that have have no footprint in the West at all. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> and maybe it's because my family actually, you know, immigrated here from from, from Russia in the, in the last century, well, the century before the last century. But I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I I, I find it to be entertaining. I never would have guessed ever in my life Russian folk music would be. Uh, sure, I would have guessed Mozart. Why not? That's why I ask because now uh, now people will know and hopefully. They won't read into it too much. I, I think that probably the music you're talking about was written at a time when there was no a big communist uh, party, Cold War. It's sort of separate from that Russian peasant folk music, I'm thinking. Music, I'm yes, thinking. yeah, yes, yes, Russian peasant. Now, I will tell you a story about this because I, there was a couple of songs that, that I really wanted to be able to download and I could not figure out what they were called. You know, I, I spent some time doing it. So one day, I actually on my iPhone, I, and I realized that I would have to, you know, look them up in in Russian. So I changed my keyboard from the English alphabet to the Russian alphabet, and then I realized I couldn't change it back. <laughs> Everything on my phone changed to Russian. So I'm in an NSA file somewhere. There, there is somebody who's who's going, you know, who's looking and going. Yes, he communicates in Russian. His phone is all in Russian. And he pretends to be a wholesome Midwesterner from Wisconsin. Exactly. That's my deep. That's my deep cover. <laughs> it's great, uh, Charlie Sykes. What, what do you wake up worrying about at night, and what do you wake up being optimistic about on on the off nights where you're not worrying in the middle of the night? Well, I wake up um, optimistic about the fact that this this will all pass. That there will come a day we will wake up and it will be done. And we can think about other things, that I can spend more time with my dogs. I can spend more time with my, my, my grandkids. There will be a time when I am not obsessively focused on the electoral system. You know, and then I can sit back, you know, and look out at the water and read books and things like that. So that, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm optimistic about. The life, life will continue to be good. What I'm worried about is getting through the next few months. I'm worried about the election. I'm worried about the aftermath of the election. I'm worried about whether our institutions are going to be able to, you know, survive this stress test. I mean, I think, you know, 160 days from now, we are going to know a lot more about America than we know right now. Hopefully, that means that uh, I'll get up in the morning and go out and have a cup of coffee and go, hey, you know, the world is good again. Things turned out well. 
I hope. The Democratic Convention is just around the pike. Give us a little preview. What, what should we look towards? Who should we watch? Who should we be watching? What should we be watching for? And a, any surprises? What, what, what should we be aware of? Well, first of all, be aware of the fact that I'm sitting here in, you know, just north of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where we were supposed to actually have the convention. This was a big deal here. We were expecting, you know, thousands of people. People spent a lot of money getting ready for this. And basically now you have like, you know, six, six guys in a beer cooler who are going to be showing up. I mean, it's, it's kind of disappointing. I mean, I, it's hard not to take it kind of personally. Um, um are you going to be one of those guys? Yeah, it's, it, it's certainly, it's certainly possible. I, I actually was thinking of writing something about, about the conventions, you know, I, I, I think conventions for a long time have been uh, have been anachronisms. Nothing actually really happens. Uh, there are great shows. There are great entertainment. It's going to be interesting to know whether or not they ever come back after after all of this. So the only thing that I think is worth really paying any attention to is uh, are the are the obvious things. Uh, is Joe Biden going to pick a vice president who is going to help him or uh, be a distraction? And we'll find that out in the next couple of days. And number two, what kind of a speech does he give? So I think that right now, Joe Biden is in the very unusual position of being in this late in the campaign, still not totally defined in the minds of a lot of voters. Given the fact that uh, the Trump folks have spent tens of millions of dollars telling people that he's a doddering, you know, a doddering old man who can't string together some sentences, um, they've lowered the expectations for Joe Biden. This is kind of a gift to him. All Joe Biden needs to do is show up, sound reasonably coherent, and he wins. If he gives a particularly powerful speech, I, I think it's going to be um, – it will give a big boost to his campaign. But everything else in the campaign is – just be quite honest. I mean everything else in this convention is going to be white noise. Probably not that significant. I think the, the in, to a certain extent maybe they, they, they caught a break because they we won't have – you know, street protests. There's no chance that there will be floor fights. So, a lot of the messy, uh, unpredictable elements of the of the convention have been eliminated, which you know is going to be make it less entertaining, less newsworthy, but uh, but probably better for Joe Biden in the long run. Charlie Sykes, speaking about showing up and being quote reasonably coherent i thank you for being here and for being more than reasonably coherent you're great well thank you very much you've been listening to talking beats with daniel lalchuk i hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on apple spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts the producer of digital content is brian west the original theme music for this program is by ronald markham the content coordinator is nathaniel mose doug christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. See you next time.